Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So welcome everybody to another episode of Butts and Guts. We're very pleased to have you join us. As you know, this is a podcast that we're looking at uh, digestive health as well as surgical diseases here at the Cleveland Clinic. So I'm very pleased to have Dr. Stefan Holabar here. Stefan is one of our colorectal staff surgeons. He's a director of our IBD research and also is the director of our multidisciplinary IBD conference. Stefan, welcome to Butts and Guts. Thanks so much, Scott. It's a real honor, especially since I've been telling my kids for years that I'm a butt and gut surgeon. That's fantastic. So, you know, I know your background, but for the listeners out there, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you're from and where'd you train and how it came to that you were at the Cleveland Clinic? Well, I grew up in Sternbrook, Long Island, and I went to a medical school at the University of Vermont and studied with a colorectal surgeon there. And that's how I initially got interested. His name's Neil Hyman, who happens to be an alumnus of uh, this fellowship program uh, here at Cleveland Clinic. And then I went to do my residency at North Shore LIJ, where I was then again exposed to a, a number of different surgeons who had trained through this program in colorectal surgery. So ever since medical school and residency, I've kind of have this Cleveland Clinic colorectal kind of stamp or background on me. I subsequently went to uh, Mayo Clinic to do my colorectal surgery fellowship and took two years extra to get a master's in clinical research and outcome science. And after that, I went to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where I ultimately was the chief of colorectal surgery. After spending about seven, eight years at Dartmouth, I decided that I really wanted to be at a place that was uh, more academic and what now is the highest volume of inflammatory bowel disease surgery in the world. Well, we're very lucky to have you here. So, uh, Stefan, we're going to take 20 minutes or so and talk about Crohn's disease, which is a tremendous task. But let's give our audience a little bit of a bird's eye view. What's Crohn's disease? Well, Crohn's disease is a disease that was named after Dr. Crohn, and it's an interesting story, actually. There were three doctors at Mount Sinai uh, who, in 1932, published a case series of patients who had previously unrecognized disease, and they described this as terminal ileitis or regional enteritis, which means nonspecific inflammation of the small intestine. And it was Dr. Crohn, Ginsburg, and Oppenheimer. And it's funny history because Dr. Crohn actually contributed less than Dr. Ginsburg and Oppenheimer. So it could have been Dr. Ginsburg's disease or Oppenheimer's disease, but ultimately Crohn was the first author because he came first in the alphabet. Just as a background to that, if you really even go further into that story, the majority of them were Dr. Berg's patients who was a surgeon, but because he was the surgeon, he decided to keep his name off the paper, but otherwise it would be Berg's disease if it would have been in alphabetical order. So that's the history of it. But tell us a little bit about what is Crohn's. So it's regional enteritis, which means nonspecific inflammation of the small intestine. And what we know now is that it really is an auto-inflammatory disease of the bowels. And we say that it can affect anywhere along the GI tract from the mouth to the anus. And this can be very minor, such as mouth sores, but can also be very major with uh, strictures, which are tight spots of the small intestine or large intestine, as well as abscesses, which are pus pockets. This is a disease that uh, usually develops at the average age of about 28 or 29 and is more common in young adulthood from the 30s to 40s and less common as you get older. But what you know now is actually that it slowly decreases after age 30 or so. And it's very uncommon in young children and in the very elderly. This is a disease that affects about one in 200 people. 
and about one-third of the patients have disease that's isolated to the small intestines, the ileum and the jejunum, and about one-third of people have disease that affects only the large bowels, which is the colon and the rectum, and then about one-third of people that affects both. In addition, some people have what's called perianal disease, which is sore bottom with fissures, which are like paper cuts on the anus, fistulas and pus pockets, abscesses, and that can be very debilitating. For those of you who want to hear about the latter of the perianal disease, please see the Butts and Guts menu. We have a whole dedicated episode on perianal disease and Crohn's. So you mentioned a lot about Crohn's disease, uh, one in 200 people, which is startling when you think about that. But what causes Crohn's? So that's a great question, and we still don't really know, but we're getting closer. The most popular theory is called the hygiene hypothesis. And I'm going to back up a second and tell you about where we see Crohn's disease in the world most commonly, and that's in North America, meaning the United States and Canada, as well as Western and Northern Europe. And people who are of Scandinavian or Western European or Ashkenazi Jewish descent tend to have higher rates of Crohn's disease and also inflammatory bowel disease. What we've learned is that these Western societies and in northern climates tend to be exposed to different kinds of bacteria, we believe, because of this hygiene hypothesis suggests that we live in an overly clean environment. And when we're children, we're not exposed to certain bacteria. And this kind of sets us up for the immune system kind of going haywire a little bit and having this auto-inflammation uh, as opposed to an autoimmune disease that's a little bit different. It's just a the body turns on inflammation in the guts, and, and we don't really know why. Uh, it has something to do with genes, something to do with bacteria, something to do with the environment. So I want to delve a little bit more into that. You said initially that for years it's been a very common disease, but we don't know exactly what it's from, and now we're talking about this hygiene hypothesis. Can any ethnic background get Crohn's disease? And is it to the point where even if you don't get exposed to this multifactorial disease, could, could you still get Crohn's disease? Yes, the countries that are described are those that Crohn's disease is most common. Those are the high-risk hotspots in the world. But certainly Crohn's disease is seen in every continent and every ethnicity in the world. To give a little bit more detail about the hygiene hypothesis is that we think that um, in Western societies we're exposed to different things that change our microbiome. The microbiome is the um, populations of different kinds of bacteria, which is approximately 100 trillion bacteria within your bowels. There's more bacteria in your bowels than you have cells in your body, which is pretty remarkable. So anyway, the Western societies have such different microbiome in their intestines than other societies. And in fact, when you immigrate from, say, East Asia to the uh, Western societies, you actually increase your risk of getting Crohn's disease. So it's not who you are, it's more where you are. God, that's very interesting. You mentioned also some point of a genetic component. So asked in a little bit different way, is it that a patient may be more susceptible from their makeup, that uh, they have a genetic thing that, that kind of turns the trigger on and I may be exposed to the same thing as you, but because of my genetic makeup, I don't get Crohn's, but you go ahead and you get it? That's exactly right. The concordance rate for siblings who have, so for example, if you have a 
a brother or sister who has Crohn's disease, it's not 100% that you're going to get Crohn's disease. It's about 20 to 30% chance. And that suggests exactly what you mentioned, that it's not a, a gene per se, but it's a genetic predisposition, meaning you get set up if you get exposed to the secondary thing like this special bacteria that maybe sets off the dysregulation, the altered inflammatory system. So moving on right now, let's talk a little bit about the symptoms of Crohn's. Just walk me through some of the symptoms on a kind of a bird's eye view of Crohn's disease. The most common symptom in Crohn's disease is crampy abdominal pain. And the second most common is diarrhea. And the third most common is fatigue. Those are the top three symptoms for patients who have Crohn's disease of their intestines. They also can have weight loss because basically patients learn that if they eat something and they have a blockage from a stricture that they may have abdominal pain. So then they don't want to eat because they don't want to have abdominal pain. But then the bad side of that is that then they lose weight. So those are the uh, most common symptoms. And also it's, um, it's a chronic disease. It's not like you have abdominal cramps for a week and then it goes away and you're fine. This is something that kind of comes and goes over time. About 50% of patients are in remission, and uh, overall about 50% of patients have this waxing and waning, kind of coming and going type of symptoms, as opposed to be continuously sick or kind of having very, very severe disease that puts you in the hospital right off the bat. That's less common, only about 15%. Okay, let's take a little bit deeper dive into that. I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast right now that are thinking, gosh, I've had crampy abdominal pain. I've had diarrhea. As a matter of fact, sometimes I, I'm not sure if my weight's been stable. Do I got Crohn's disease? Probably not. And you probably should um, start off with your primary care physician and they'll take a good history and see what the timing of the uh, symptoms that you're complaining of are. And they may likely refer you to a gastroenterologist for further testing. And uh, Crohn's disease is, um, although one in 200 sounds common, it's pretty uncommon actually. And it's also can be difficult to diagnose. So often you'll have to have multiple tests, such as a colonoscopy, a gastrointestinal endoscopy, some blood work, maybe a CAT scan, MRI scan. And then usually the GI doctor is the one driving the show, puts all the information together and make sure that it's not any other thing going on. Sometimes what we call a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning you make sure it's not C. difficile antibiotic-associated colitis. It's not plain old gastroenteritis. It's no kind of tumor or anything like that. Then they're kind of left scratching their head thinking, well, looks like there's nothing else that fits. This is probably Crohn's disease. One of the things that uh, we're talking about with, with Crohn's disease is it can affect anywhere in the GI tract, as you were saying earlier. Can it affect other body parts or other places in the body? Absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, it can. There's multiple different areas of the body that are affected. And since Crohn's disease is mainly in a disease of the intestines, if you have disease outside of the intestines from Crohn's disease, it's called EIM, which stands for extra intestinal manifestation. And from your top down, this can affect your eyes with something called uveitis or iritis, which could be irritation of different parts of the eye. It can affect your mouth with uh, non-healing small mouth sores. It can affect your skin with something called pyoderma gangrenosum or erythema nodosum, which are different kinds of non-healing wounds or red nodules, commonly 
over the shin. It can affect the liver with something called primary sclerosing cholangitis. Uh, it can affect the joints, usually most commonly the knees, and this is very common in patients with Crohn's disease complain of not necessarily arthritis, which is also another related inflammatory disease of the joints, but something called arthralgia, which is just pain and not necessarily swelling of the joints, usually the knees and other large joints. Another term that gets often confused, especially when you're dealing with the kind of the parent company of Crohn's disease, the, uh, the IBD or inflammatory bowel disease is IBS irritable bowel syndrome, which have many of the symptoms that you talked about earlier. Uh, what's a broad definition of kind of a distinguisher between the two? So this is something that even the medical students mix up sometimes, and I like to make sure they get this right. So IBS, or irritable bowel syndrome, is very, very common. It's not one in 200. It's probably more in one in 20 or one in 50. It's very, very common. And irritable bowel syndrome is basically just having sensitive bowels. Your brain and your gut are kind of overly connected. You're, you sense things that in your bowels that maybe other people don't sense. You may have alternating diarrhea or constipation or one or the other. And this is something that can be treated with just diet and, and reducing stress in your, in your life. And uh, it's not associated with any inflammation. IBD, on the other hand, inflammatory bowel disease, not irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease is when there's inflammation of the intestines. That's the reason the inflammation, you get the pain, you get the strictures, you even get the fistulas or the tunnels between different organs. Right. So if you think about your knee, if you go and you bang your knee when you're walking down the stairs, you slip and you bang your knee, your knee is going to get hot and swollen. And that's a sign of inflammation. And in IBD, it's the same thing except happening on the inside. And it's not like you banged your insides. It's just kind of, it's like as if you're, you were just walking around and your knee became swollen all, all out of the blue. You're walking around and all of a sudden your bowels get swollen. That's exactly what inf the inflammation means. It means swollen, inflamed bowels. So let's go back to the diagnosis. Now I'm somebody out there that's listening to this podcast and I say, gosh, you know what? Nobody can figure out what's going on with me, but you know, listen to Dr. Hollibar. I think that maybe this Crohn's disease is something that I might have. And they find themselves going to the doctor. What can they expect from that doctor's visit? And then subsequent visits, walk me through the traditional workup for diagnosis of Crohn's. Although colorectal surgeons sometimes diagnose Crohn's disease, most of the time it's done by gastroenterologists. And first, they'll start with a very thorough history about things that kind of set off the abdominal pain, things that make it better, the quality, the location of the pain, if there's any family history of inflammatory bowel disease. For example, we know that uh, patients who have ulcerative colitis if their family members have ulcerative colitis, it's more likely that they have ulcerative colitis. But if someone has Crohn's disease and they have something that looks like ulcerative colitis, it actually may be Crohn's disease. So they tend to not change within a family. But so the gastroenterologist will usually start off with a very, very thorough history, asking lots and lots of questions. That'll take up the majority of the visit. And then there's usually a brief physical examination, looking at the mouth, the fingers, the skin, palpating or pushing gently on the belly to see if there's any tenderness or any other abnormalities. Uh, and usually a rectal exam, uh, a quick rectal exam will be done. But usually there's no endoscopy or colonoscopy at the first visit. Usually what happens is if a doctor 
thinks you might have Crohn's disease, then they'll give you instructions to have a colonoscopy at a later date, and they'll give you a prescription to drink, a, you know, the four liters of Go Lightly or, a, or 64 ounces of Miralax. They'll look inside the colon, the rectum, and the anus, take biopsies. That's the best single test we have to try to get an idea of whether or not a patient has inflammatory bowel disease, especially by looking at the top of the colon where it's connected to the small intestine known as the terminal ileum. So along those same lines, somebody gets a colonoscopy, you mentioned about the imaging, and also is there a blood test that can diagnose Crohn's disease? There's not really a good blood test. There are some blood tests, but they're only about 50-50 at predicting if you have inflammatory bowel disease. There are some genetic tests, but those also, like we talked about earlier, just show a predisposition. They can't actually make the diagnosis. The only thing that can make the diagnosis is actually the doctor who pits together the history, the physical, the findings from the endoscopy, and the findings from the CAT scan or the other kinds of imaging. So very interesting. So now let's say I got Crohn's disease. I'm somebody who's got Crohn's and What is the typical kind of classes of medical therapy that they may be subject to in terms of treatment from their gastroenterologist or primary care doc? There's something called an immunomodulator class of medicines, and that was um, um, basically popularized by Dr. Daniel Present in the 1980s and 1990s, at Mount, also at Mount Sinai in New York City, just where Dr. Crone worked, and Dr. Oppenheimer Ginsberg and Berg did as well. And he popularized using ASA, which is azathioprine, or 6-MP, and they're basically the same medication. And these um, are uh, immunosuppressants that work well on the bowels. Um, the next class of medications that we use are corticosteroids, which is commonly known as prednisone. And although prednisone has a lot of side effects, it can really put someone into remission uh, pretty quickly and get them feeling better and get them eating again and putting on some weight. And then more recently, within the last uh, 10 to 15 years, a class of medications called biologics has come about. And this is medications that are actually antibodies that are fashioned in the laboratory, but they're biological medications. They're antibodies that are derived from different, sometimes a mouse, sometimes a horse, sometimes human uh, antibodies. And uh, these attack different molecules within the body that are along the pathway of inflammation. And these have really been revolutionary and have changed the natural history of the disease, really slowing it down and making surgery less likely for the patients. So we're surgeons and those are your classes of medical management. Many patients may be on one or escalating doses or intermittently on all of them. What are the indications, just broad indications why somebody would need a surgeon for Crohn's disease? So this is very different from ulcerative colitis. In ulcerative colitis, there's multiple different reasons why we um, take the colon out. We can take it out because the patient is refractory to medical therapy or to prevent or treat colorectal cancer. And uh, in ulcerative colitis, uh, the colectomy surgery is curative for the what we say the intestinal manifestations of the disease because it only affects the colon and the rectum and ulcerative colitis. However, in Crohn's disease, it can affect any part of the intestinal tract, and you cannot remove the entire intestinal tract without you know, having to be on permanent intravenous feeding, so we really don't do that. So in Crohn's disease, we limit surgery for the surgical complications of 
Crohn's disease or for patients who are having too many complications from the medical therapy they're receiving. For example, a surgical complication of Crohn's disease is something that's not going to be fixed by medicine, and this is a stricture, which is a scar tissue on the inside of the bowel, which basically can make you feel like you're having to poop through a straw. And that is associated with a lot of pain and bloating and nausea and vomiting. And by removing that straw-like thick pipe, we can restore the patient's bowels to a, a wider lumen or the cross-sectional area the pipe is wider and get them feeling better. Um, another example of a surgical complication of Crohn's disease is a fistula, which is a connection from one part of the intestine to another part of the intestine, for example, usually from the small intestine to the large intestine, such as the sigmoid colon. And in that circumstance, we've removed the source of the fistula, the upstream part, which is usually the ileum, and may or may not have to remove the downstream part, which is usually the sigmoid colon. Is Crohn's at a higher risk or is Crohn's disease cancer? Patients should not be worried that Crohn's disease is cancer. Although patients with Crohn's disease can subsequently develop uh, both colon cancer, which overall is very, very common. It's the third most common cancer in the United States and, and in North America. Um, patients with both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are at increased risk of developing colorectal cancer. And Crohn's disease patients who have very long-standing, meaning Crohn's disease of the small intestine for 30 or 40 years, are at a slightly increased risk of getting small bowel cancer. What about those patients with colonic Crohn's? Yeah, so similar to what I mentioned about the patients who have very long-standing small bowel disease, patients who have very long-standing colonic disease are at increased risk for colorectal cancer. And this is because the inflammation forces the body to be in this kind of continuous like injury healing cycle and that's part of the inflammatory process where it's constantly trying to heal and stimulate itself to grow. And you can kind of see how, you know, the pressure, it's like having the accelerator on. You're constantly trying to put gas on the cells to grow and that, you know, can eventually turn into cancer, but still it's it's not that common. The vast majority of the people who have IBD do not develop a cancer. I'd say less than 10% chance of that. So finishing up here, what's the outlook for patients with Crohn's disease? You know, as a colorectal surgeon, I'm very well aware that approximately 60 to 80% of patients who have Crohn's disease will need surgery at some point in their life. But the good news is that, you know, the medical therapies are increasing the length of time that you can live without needing surgery. And also our surgical interventions are really revolutionized in the last 10 years. We now have advanced laparoscopic and robotic techniques where we make very small incisions and do surgery on the inside. And we also have something called an enhanced recovery. And this is a way that we take care of patients before, during, and after surgery where we're trying to put less stress on the body. We're trying to um, limit the amount of stress that we cause as a healthcare system or before, during, and after surgery. And we can do major surgeries, removing someone's entire colon and hooking it back together, and they can go home in two days uh, after surgery. It's really remarkable. So things have gotten a lot better. If, you, if you're unfortunately unlucky enough to have uh, Crohn's diseases in yourself and your family member and you need to have surgery, you should be much reassured that things are much, much better than they used to be even 10 or 15 years ago. Are there things that patients can do with Crohn's disease uh, besides just taking their medications that limit the recurrence of Crohn's or the manifestations of that? 
Yeah, I mean, what you mentioned, Scott, is the most important single thing is to pay attention to what your gastroenterologist recommends. Don't disappear and not follow up to your visits and uh, make sure you get the colonoscopies done when you're supposed to. Often comes up, uh, what about diet? You know, you can try doing, you know, different kinds of diet. There's not really good science behind that, but we do have very good science behind is that smoking exacerbates Crohn's disease and makes it worse. And this, you know, I think is one of the most important things that people with Crohn's disease need to know. If you have Crohn's disease, you cannot smoke. It will make things worse. It'll cause you more pain and suffering and increase the likelihood that you will need surgery. And it will also increase the likelihood that you will do poorly or have bad outcomes relative to someone who's not smoking going into surgery. Yeah, smoking in general is not great, but especially for Crohn's patients, not ideal. Okay, Stefan, so we like to end up here on the podcast with some quick hitters. So Really quickly, what's your favorite sport? Uh, downhill skiing, without question. And your favorite meal? My favorite meal, what popped in my head was spaghetti with meat sauce. Awesome. And uh, the last book that you read? Well, I, I was recently coming back from the American Society of Colorectal Surgery meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, and I had to stop in the airport to pick up a book for uh, my, my six-year-old son, Tobin. And uh, my daughter lost her hedgehog recently, so I got them these little toy hedgehogs, and I got a book called Hedgehogs. So that was the last book I read. And what's the best thing you like about uh, being and living here in Cleveland? Well, it's being part of your team, Scott. This is why I came here to treat patients from all over the world with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, but I really like the trees. There's trees everywhere. It's a forest city, and I love the lake. I like to get out there and catch some walleye. And if you could sum up uh, Crohn's disease, 10 words or less? It's uncommon uh, disease, uh, but it can be very severe. If you have it, um, don't lose hope. Uh, rely on support of institutions like the Crohn's Oclitis Foundation and uh, try to make sure you get a doctor who uh, sees a lot of patients with Crohn's disease. This should be uh, an obediologist, uh, both on the medical and surgical side, and uh, things are much better than they used to be. And most patients with Crohn's disease live very long, happy, uh, productive lives without much pain and suffering relative to years past. That's fantastic. That's roughly about 10 words. So to learn more about Crohn's disease, please download our free inflammatory bowel disease treatment guide at clevelandclinic.org slash IBD. That's clevelandclinic.org slash IBD. And to make an appointment with a Cleveland Clinic specialist, please call 216-444-7000. That's 216-444-7000. Stefan, thanks so much for joining us on Butts and Guts. Thanks, Scott. It's my pleasure. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.